We're going to talk about homosexuality today. You know, when I was a young person, that wasn't an issue for me or any of us, really. I mean, it was something that some people did, but not anybody I knew. And then as years went by, I guess during the 90s, you know, people were talking about the bullying of homosexuals, which I'm not in favor of. And just as a preface for this teaching, I want everybody to understand something that we're going to speak the truth on homosexuality, but we are not in any way saying that homosexuals are to be treated disparagingly with disgust or contempt or anything else. If we're honest with ourselves and honest with God, we are all sinners. This is just one manifestation of sin, a big one, but it is just one. We all have our own sin. So we would be very hypocritical if we were to treat homosexuals with contempt. Okay. Now I do, as before we go on, I do draw a big distinction between a person who's caught in their sin and somebody who's a militant homosexual. And there are militant homosexuals out there and I regard them as wicked and evil that these are the people, you know, the whole transgender movement. I don't know if you know the term, but it's the term called groomers, grooming who are going after our children. And I don't care who you are. If that's what your agenda is, you are my enemy. And that's just being straight up. But there are a lot of homosexuals out there who are caught in sin and they want to get out. And we have nothing but compassion and love for people like that, as Jesus would, right? I always think of the record where Jesus went up to the man who had leprosy. Who, I mean, that's a comparable story. He was a man who had a physical ailment in that culture that made him onerous to anybody. I mean, people would run from that person. And what did Jesus do? He hugged them. He went up and hugged them. So that's got to be our heart towards the, the the person caught in sin, okay? So as we go through this topic today, I'm just going to get very honest about some things, but please don't allow that to be translated in your mind that I'm, you know, accusing anybody, all right? So that's very important. So anyway, back to what I was saying. Back in the 90s, we were... T- told that, you know, people shouldn't bully homosexuals. And, you know, there was a kind of a wellspring of compassion in our culture for the homosexual. And okay, yes. And then it it evolved into uh, that homosexuals should be able to visit their significant other when their significant other is in the hospital dying, perhaps, right? So it was a legal issue. And then it evolved into heterosexuals can get married. Shouldn't homosexuals be able to get married too? And to most people, that seemed fairly reasonable. And we were all told at that time that we just want equality. It's an equality. And so that was, laws were changed and that was enabled and it happened. And then came the transgender movement. One of the interesting things is I was talking the other day about the homosexual movement, the LGBTQ movement, and the transgender movement have become a bunch of bullies. Once upon a time, we accepted homosexuality in our culture because of the bullying, right? That was happening to them, and now they have become the bullies. And that's 
That's just being honest. That's exactly what has happened. I'm still, whenever I bring this topic up, I'm still being told that, you know, oh, people are dying. People are dying, you know, meaning they're, they're getting beaten up because they're homosexual or transgender. That's a lie. I mean, they're probably isolated cases, but that is not what's happening in our culture today. Sorry. If we have a, the homosexual and transgender movements have, are a protected class of people. If you were to say anything remotely disparaging to perhaps a homosexual, you could get fired for that in your job. So that's just the, the case here. And I, I've, I see that the Christian church has gone fairly mute on the topic, that people aren't speaking out and speaking the truth, that everything is qualified, that as soon as somebody says that homosexuality is a sin, they follow it up immediately is with, but I still love you, you know, which I, I just did. And, and for understandable purposes, right? Because none of us want to be labeled as being a hater. I don't want to be la labeled as being a hater. But we have got as a church to speak the truth on this. It is imperative. The homosexual lobby is growing in leaps and bounds. And I don't know if you know this or not, but in Canada right now, as a pastor, it is against the law to preach against homosexuality. You will go to jail for that in Canada. Isn't that amazing? And it's just a matter of time before that happens here. And just so that you know, when it does, guess who's going to jail? <laughs> I will. I will. Because as, yeah, as, Peter, as Peter says, I ought to obey God rather than man. So we're going to look at this topic. We're going to start in Genesis chapter 1, Genesis 1. As in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the uh, surface of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. So you have a situation where you have darkness and you have chaos. Okay? Darkness and chaos. Wherever the Spirit of God moves, you will have order and you will have light. Okay? God brings light to darkness and God brings order to chaos. Wherever the Spirit of God is... That's what you find. And you can deduce that wherever you find the spirit of, the, of Satan, you're going to find the opposite, ultimately. Verse 3, and God said, let there be light. God created light to differentiate between light and darkness. Okay? And in verse 4, he said, and it was good. Verse 9, God spoke and spoke into being the earth and the sky. And in verse 10, he said, it is good. In verse 11, God spoke plant life into being, each plant producing after its own type. And in verse 12, God said, it is good. And in verse 20, God spoke the fish of the sea and the birds of the air into being, and each animal would reproduce after its own kind. And in verse 21, he said, it is good. And then finally, in verse 26, it said, then God said, let us make man in our own image or our image. In our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air, over the livestock, over all the earth, over all the creatures that, are, that move along the ground. Okay, so this is God's creation. And so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female. He created them. Okay, important, male and female. How many genders? Two. God blessed them and said... Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air and over every living creature that moves on the ground. God saw all that he made 
And what? It was very good. Very good. How about that? And there was evening and there was morning the sixth day. Okay. So out of God's creation, what was the pinnacle of his creation? Mankind. Mankind. Okay. So God gave order to chaos, light to darkness. In the word in John chapter one, it says that in the beginning was a word and the word was with God and the word was God. Okay. When we talk about in the beginning was a word and the word was with God and the word was God, everybody wants to jump to to conclusions and say, oh, that's Jesus. No, the word, the logos is talking about God's creative will. Okay. His creative will that God had a creative intent. Okay. That the logos in the beginning was the word, the logos, that this word was an expression of God's will, an expression of his plan, his purpose, his reason, and his wisdom. Okay, keep that in mind now. Plan, purpose, reason, wisdom. That that's what the logos is. Now, later on, I think it's in verse 14, and it it says, and the word became flesh. And we know that's Jesus Christ, right? But the word was also spoken, wasn't it, by the prophets. And the word was also written by the prophets. We have scripture, okay? So when people want to jump at John 1, 1 and say, oh, that's Jesus. No, that's not Jesus. That's the word, okay? So when we're talking about God's creative purpose, this is his purpose, right? I'll show you this. Go to uh, Psalm 8, Psalm chapter 8. So it's important when we talk about in the beginning, What was God's intentions in the beginning, right? What was his purpose? What was his desire? Because we know things change over the years, don't they? Some change is good. Some change isn't so good, okay? So Psalm 8, look in verse 1. It says, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. From the lips of children and infants, you have ordained praise because of your enemies to silence the foe and the avenger. When I considered your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and stars, which you have set in place, what is that you are mindful of him, the son of man, that you care for him? So the psalmist is saying, I look at your amazing creation, right? And I say, what's man, right? I mean, mankind, is he, is he the pinnacle? Not anymore. He's not. He was in the beginning though, wasn't he? You made him. Who's the him here? Well, it's mankind. It was Adam, right, in the beginning. You made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You made him ruler over the works of your hands. You put everything under his feet, all flocks and herds and beasts of the field and beasts of the air and the fish of the sea, all that swim the paths of the seas. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. So like I said, we're certainly not talking about mankind as he is now, right? This was Adam in the beginning. This is as God intended mankind to be. You could call it the prototypical man, right? This is his intention. This is how he intended man to be, okay? And it's important for us to understand this. It says, you crowned him with glory and honor. You made him ruler over the works of your hands. You put everything under his feet. I'm reading a book now called Kingdom Through Covenant. And in there, it says this really amazing paragraph. It says, it is clear and obvious that the psalm writer has the text of Genesis 1, the one that we just got finished reading, before his mind, word by word. Note in particular that the terms in Hebrew for crowned, 
glory, and honor are all royal terms. This shows that the psalm writer understood image. Remember, God created us in his image, and that it speaks of royal status. Furthermore, the Hebrew word rule used in Psalm 8-7 is a broad term meaning to have dominion, to reign, to rule, but generally speaking, as a king, okay? So Adam wasn't just a functionary. He was a king, (laughs) meant to rule his dominion. We talked a couple of weeks ago about agency, didn't we? There's a great example. In fact, the first example of agency in the Bible was Adam ruling. Isn't that something? As a king, the phrase place under his feet is an image associated with royalty. What's interesting is that in uh, in ancient texts, they find the same term under your feet in poems by the III, which is an Egyptian. You find it in the Phoenician inscriptions and Assyrian royal text. So this idea of everything being placed under the feet of this ruling king, that's where we get the notion of sovereignty, right? Soul rulership. And it says that he was placed a little lower than heavenly beings. Now, this is an interesting term. When you go to the New Testament and you go into the book of Hebrews, they quote this verse and it, they say he was made a little lower than the angels. And that always kind of puzzled me. Because if you know the book of Hebrews, you know that the first part of the chapter was saying, well, wait a minute, Jesus isn't an angel. He's better than the angel, right? And I I didn't really get this whole angel thing. Well, the word here for angel is Elohim. Does anybody know the word Elohim? It's God, right? But it's also used in terms of designated agents of God, right? And here it talks about how Jesus was made a little lower than the heavenly beings. In in specific, we're talking about the heavenly council, all right? So it wasn't just your run-of-the-mill ordinary angel that mankind was made lower than. He was made directly underneath this notion of the heavenly council. So there's God and the heavenly council, and mankind was right there. Does that make sense to everybody? Okay, that's this notion of Elohim. It's not just an angel. It's a high-ranking position, okay? Does that make sense? Okay, so... This is important because remember in Corinthians, it talks about how one day we will be judging the angels. So in a future state, humanity, those who are resurrected from the dead, who live with God, will be judging the angels. We will be in an exalted status. Isn't that cool? So, but the point here is, is that that was mankind's original state. Mankind was royalty. That's how God intended Interesting, too, is that later on in the New Testament, it talks about how we are God's, what, royal household. So royalty isn't lost on us. That's my point. We haven't yet gotten to where we will be going, but we are on our way. So that's pretty cool. You crowned him with glory and honor. You made him a ruler, mankind a ruler over all the works. And this is how God intended humanity in the beginning, right? And then what happened? The fall. You know, it's been reduced to, you know, Adam taking a bite of an apple. And it's just ridiculous. It's that Adam disobeyed God, that Adam wanted to live a life without God. And that Lucifer had tempted him by saying, ye shall be gods, right? So he had fallen into the same trap that Lucifer had fallen into, that he felt like he didn't need God, that he could exist apart from God. That was the temptation. 
and mankind was thrown down from his royal status. So that's where mankind is today. So when you start talking about mankind, most people think of man in his fallen state, but that is not how mankind originally was. All right, go to Psalm 19 and look in verse 1. It says, The heavens declare the glory of the Lord, and the skies proclaim the work of his hands. What's this talking about? That means that God's creation declares God. It's a witness of God. Isn't that great? I think I've told everybody in this fellowship about it. I was talking to uh, one of my family members who's an atheist, and, and he's also a smoker. And we were outside smoking this one time. It was like 2 in the morning, and uh, we were having a conversation about God. And he says, prove to me God. And I said, you know, I can't prove God. He said, prove to me God. I said, okay. And I looked up. It was a beautiful night, starry night. All the stars are out. And I looked up and I, I looked at him and I looked up and I put my arms out and I said, behold, God. And he was like, he's like, oh, no, I'm not going to let you off. And I said, no, behold, God. And it took him like I had to say it like three or four times before he was like, he saw the magnificence of God, that this is the creation. So when we read here, the heavens declare the glory of the Lord or glory of God and the skies proclaim the work of his hands. It goes on to say day after day, they pour forth speech. Night after night, they display knowledge. Isn't it something? So the creation is constantly speaking to us. And what's it telling us? God, God, right? It is a witness. It is a witness. Now, what has man done? Well, we've recreated these concrete jungles called cities, and we got hooked into our, you know, smartphones, and pretty soon we're walking around like this, and we're not walking around like this. It says in verse 3, there is no speech or language where their voice is not heard. That means that the little Chinaman looking up at the sky sees the same thing that I see that the Ukrainian sees, that the European sees, that the African sees, we all see the same creation. And we all are being taught, by the way, from that creation. That's the point here. Verse 4, their voice goes out unto all the earth and their words unto the ends of the world. In the heavens he placed a tent for the sun, which is like a bridegroom coming forth from his pavilion, like a champion rejoicing to run his course. And this is talking about Jesus Christ, right? It rises at one end, the sun uh, of heaven, and it makes its circuit to the other, and nothing is hidden from its heat. Meaning that everybody, I don't care if somebody comes up to you and says, I don't believe in God. Well, you can say that all you want, but if you have a cogent mind, God, you know God. You, you, are, you know God. You know God exists. And anybody who says otherwise is just not being honest. And I'll explain why later on. God is universal. God is undeniable. You cannot deny God. You can't escape God. He's there. And it was written in God's very creation. Okay, this is important. It's always teaching and it's always guiding. Day after day, they pour forth speech. Night after night, they display knowledge. There is no speech or language where their voice is not heard. God's law goes out into all the earth and his words to the end of the world. People try to minimize Yahweh into being, you know, a mere provincial God of the Hebrews. Everybody know what I mean by that, right? He's just, all the ancient people had little gods. You know, they had little deities and they all worshiped them. And God, you know, the, the God of the Bible is just a provincial God of the Hebrews. 
Well, that, that not so to that. God is the creator of the heavens and the earth. He is almighty God. It goes on to say in verse 7, the law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. And it goes on to speak about the written word. So not only did God create the heavens, right, and the earth and put his witness in these, but then it goes on to say that he does the same thing in his scripture, his written word, right? It goes on and says, the statutes of the Lord are trustworthy, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, giving joy to the heart. The commands of the Lord are radiant, giving light to the eyes. The fear of the Lord is pure, enduring forever. The ordinances of the Lord are sure and altogether righteous. They are more precious than gold, than much pure gold. They are sweeter than honey from the honeycomb. By them, your servant is warned. And that's what today's teaching is all about, is a warning. It is The servant is warned. In keeping them, there is great reward. Who can discern his errors? Forgive my hidden faults. Keep your servant also from willful sins. May they not rule over me. Then shall I be blameless, innocent in great transgression. May the works of my ma- words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Isn't that beautiful? Okay, so that's it. That just as God is, is witnessing to himself in his very creation, God is witnessing to us through his scripture. There are a lot of people out there who would dismiss and trivialize the word of God, but the word of God is God. It is God. Right. It's his testimony and it encompasses everybody. Remember in Revelation where it talks about every nation, every tribe, every language and every people. Okay, so no one escapes the heat there. All right. That's important. All right. So I'm going to read again for you. Uh, this is in the REV, but John 1, 1 that I mentioned earlier. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word had the character of God. Okay? This is that logos, this expression of God. Remember in Ephesians where it says, uh, in reference to the works of God, that they are done, quote, according to the plan of him that works out everything in conformity to the purpose of his will. All right. So remember where it says, and the word was with God. What is the word? His creative intent, God's plan. It was with him in the beginning and he worked it out. He worked it out. This is his creative intent. Now, it's important that as we move on in this teaching, that everybody understand that as the creator, God is intimately associated with his creation. He didn't just create it and put it aside, that he is a creator, and this is a creation, and he's intimately associated with it, okay? It's an expression of his will. There is a spiritual link between the fidelity, faithfulness to the creator, and the fidelity to his creative intent and the order of nature, okay? In other words, you go willy-nilly violating God's order within nature, and you are violating God. I mean, that's, that's, you're insulting God. And that's something we have to keep in mind. If a man is unfaithful to God, that man is also in faith, faithful to mankind as being image bearers of God. You see that? That even in our fallen state, we are still told that we are image bearers of God, that we are created in the image of God. And I can either recognize that or I can defame that. Okay. That's important. Go to Exodus chapter 20. Exodus 22, it says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. 
You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourselves an idol in the form of anything in the heavens above or on the earth beneath or in the water below. Okay, so this is talking about idolatry. And what is the idol? Well, the the God who created all things says, look, I don't want you making idols out of created things, right? Whether they're in the heavens, on the earth, or in the sea. Don't worship the creature, but worship the creator, okay? This gets said a lot in the Bible. I mean, it's amazing. Why does God keep saying that? Because as human beings, we have a propensity to worship the created and not the creator. And we're going to see this throughout this teaching. So this is very important. Verse 5, you shall not bow down to them or worship them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing the children for the sins of the father to fathers to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing love to a thousand generations of those that love me and keep my commandments. Right? So this is the essence of idolatry in the Bible, is worshiping the creature and more, not the creator. Okay? And very important point. Everybody familiar with Canaan? Okay. You know, camping in Canaan's land. We're camping in Canaan's land. And, and when we think of Canaan, what do we think of? The promised land, right? And, you know, it gives you a, a warm fuzzy on the inside because, you know, we're going off to Canaan's land. And that, that was what it was for Israel. It was a promised land. Um, but the thing that shows up in the word pretty quickly is that moving into Canaan's land, it wasn't a cakewalk. And why was that? Because there was a lot of inhabitants of Canaan and these people weren't doing the right thing. Okay. Got to Deuteronomy chapter four. I'm, I'm amazed at how much of the old Testament, especially the, uh, the five books of, uh, Moses, the Pentateuch are devoted to warning Israel to stay away from the religions of the Canaanites, the people, you know, the tribes, the Perizzites, Hittites, Jebusites, you know, all the ites. Yeah. And, and God warning them to stay away. How much of the law was dedicated to keeping them holy from these pagan religions that they were going to be around? Okay. Deuteronomy chapter four, look at verse 12. It says, then the Lord spoke to you, and this is God talking or Yahweh talking to Moses, and the Lord spoke to you out of the fire. You heard the sound of the word, but saw no form. Important. You saw no form, but uh, there was only a voice. He declared to you his covenant, the Ten Commandments, which he commanded you to follow, and then wrote them on two tablets. And remember, a couple of weeks ago, we were talking, that's an age, that was an angel, right? Uh, verse 14, and the Lord directed you at that time to teach your decrees and laws you are to follow in the land that you are crossing the Jordan to possess. So that's the land of Canaan, right? So God is giving them a warning as they go into Canaan. Stay faithful to God's commands, okay? Verse 15, you saw no form of any kind the day the Lord spoke to you at Horeb out of the fire, right? You didn't see a form, you just heard a voice. Therefore, watch yourselves very carefully so that you do not become corrupt and make for yourselves a form. You didn't see a form in the first place, so don't go making forms. An image of any shape, whether form like a man or a woman or like an animal of the earth or 
any bird that flies in the air or like any creature that moves along the ground or any fishes in the water below. Okay, remember, there, there's, a, you know, worshiping the create, uh, creation rather than the creator. Verse 19, and when you look up to the sky and see the sun and moon and stars, all the heavenly array, do not be enticed into bowing down to them and worshiping things the Lord your God has a portion to all the nations under heaven. And throughout the Bible, this is called the host of heaven, the host of heaven. And it's not a good thing because people would worship them. They still do. They still do. And God is explicit. He wanted Israel to keep themselves from the idolatrous practices of the Canaanites as they entered into the land of Canaan. Okay? No idolatry. We're not to be worshiping men. We're not to be worshiping animals. We're not to be worshiping the heavenly host. Go to Leviticus chapter 18. Leviticus 18, and look at verse 1. It says, The Lord said unto Moses, Speak to the Israelites and say to them, I am the Lord your God. You must not do as they do in Egypt, where you used to live. And you must not do as they do in the land of Canaan, where you're going to live. He's saying, don't do it like the people that you came out of. Don't do it like the people that you're going into, right? Do not follow their practices. You must obey my laws and be careful to follow my decrees. I am Yahweh your God, okay? So don't do it like the Egyptians did it. Don't do it like the Canaanites are doing it, okay? This was a stern warning from God not to do what these pagan religions were doing. God is saying to them, come out from among them and be separate, be separate. For both the Egyptian and the Canaanite religions, worship of the creature more than the creator was fundamental to their pagan worship. It, was, it wasn't just something that some people did. It was something that they all did. It was part of the religious fabric of those societies, okay? And among the Canaanites, we're going to see this worship, ma- worship manifested itself in perverse sexual practices, okay? In fact, in the Old Testament, I mean, you won't find a chapter like Leviticus 18 that describes how distorted their sexual practices have become. It is a list of the sexual debauchery of the Canaanites that Israel was to reject and stand apart from, okay? These practices, and excuse me if this is offensive, I don't mean it to be, I'm not going to read the chapter, but these practices included having a person, a male, having sexual relations with his mother, his sister, his daughter, his aunt, his daughter-in-law, his sister-in-law, his brother's wife, a woman and her daughter at the same time, et cetera, et cetera. Okay. These are, I mean, offensive to hear about, but for them in Canaan, it was just another day. It's just another day camping in Canaan's land. You see what I'm saying? It was pervasive in their culture and in their religion. This is, I mean, I'm sure you probably haven't heard that teaching before, but that's true. In the culture of the Canaanite tribes, this was part of their culture and their practice, their religious practice. Then it says in verse 21, Do not give your children to be sacrificed to Moloch, for you must not profane the name of Yahweh, your God, Yahweh. Isn't that something? And what are we doing every day in this country? Abortion. And uh, I'll tell you something. You know, Amalek was a provincial god of the Canaanites, restricted to the geographical area, very much a god. It's a, it's a demon, okay? And that's where they sacrifice these children. Well, this is what's going on in this country, you know, under the name of, you know, women's health. 
But the fact is, in the Bible, this is religious worship to a spirit. That's just what it is. Then in Leviticus 18, verse 22, it says, Do not lie with a man as one lies with a woman that is abhorrent, detestable. Okay, why? Because it violates the creation. The creative intent of God, male and female, created he, them. Okay, that's very important. Verse 24, it goes on to say, Do not defile yourselves in any of these ways, because this is how the nations that I am going to drive out before you became defiled. People want to call these things, you know, an alternative lifestyle. No biggie, you know. You put on a blue shirt, I put on a green shirt, right? You like women. I like guys. No biggie, right? Well, the Bible says it's corruption. It's corruption. It's defilement. Verse 25, even the land was defiled. Remember I talked about that relationship between the land and the spiritual realities of God? Well, here it is, that the land became defiled. So I punished it for its sin, and the land vomited out the inhabitants. How about that? But you must keep my decrees and my laws. The native-born and the aliens living among you must not do any of these detestable things. For all these things were done by the people who lived in the land before you, and the land became defiled. So the people became defiled, and the land became defiled. Okay? You talk about God's hand of blessing on a nation. That's, that's an accurate statement, isn't it? Not just on the people of the nation, but on the land. Our country has been a prosperous country. Why? Because God's hand of blessing is upon the land. Interesting. But if you defile the land, it will vomit you out as it vomited the nations out that were before you. That's a pretty stern warning, isn't it? Does that change from administration to administration? Nope. Verse 29, everyone who does any of these detestable things, such persons must be cut off from the people. Okay? Keep my requirements and do not follow any of these, these detestable customs that were practiced before you came and do not defile yourselves with them. I am Yahweh, your God. Okay? So this is really, really important here. You know, people want to go in there, you know, the revisionist gay Christian wants to go and say, well, you know, if you, you know, Leviticus, it's, it's so silly. I mean, if you're going to, you know, in, in Leviticus 18, it says that you can't have sex with another man. But in Leviticus 11, it says that you're not supposed to eat shellfish, right? It's really tongue in cheek and ridiculous if you spend five minutes studying the scriptures on it, right? But this is what's being done to God's scripture. They forget to read the beginning of Leviticus 18, where it talks about these are the abhorrent practices of the Canaanites that were living in the land before you. And you can't live that way or the land is going to vomit you out as well. Do you see that? That's why it's so important for us to know the scripture. Go to uh, Deuteronomy chapter 9. Look at verse 4, it says, And after the Lord your God has driven them out from before you, do not say to yourself, The Lord has brought me in to take possession of this land because of my righteousness. Right? It says, No, it is on uh, in account or on account of the wickedness of the nations that the Lord is going to drive them out from before you. So don't get too haughty there, Israelite. And he says that they're going to do the same thing. Go to Acts chapter 7. Now, this is Stephen. 
I'll tell you, this sermon is an amazing sermon. You could spend a lot of time studying Stephen's sermon. Okay, and look at verse 37. It says, this is that Moses who told the Israelites, this is Stephen speaking to the Sanhedrin, and he said, this is that same Moses who spoke to the Israelites, quote, God will send you a prophet like me from your own people. Who is that prophet? Jesus Christ. He was in the assembly in the desert, this is Moses, with the angel that spoke to him on Mount Sinai and with our fathers, and he received living word to pass on to us. But our fathers refused to obey him. Instead, they rejected him and in their hearts turned back to Egypt. Now, I want to make a point there that idolatry doesn't mean that you have to make little statues, okay? You can have idolatry in the heart, that you can, in your heart, turn back to Egypt, okay? The land of bondage, you know? And you think about it, I mean, the, the parallel is pretty cool, right? God blessed us, and he delivered us from all our captivity, and we can turn back to it, okay? And a lot of people do, you know? Verse 40, they told Aaron, make us a God who will go before us. As for this fellow Moses, who led us out of Egypt, we don't know what happened to him. You know, I, I think it's interesting, the wording there. As for this fellow Moses, this fellow Moses? Yeah, isn't that something? The disrespect there. This is a guy, I mean, this guy was larger than life. You would never refer to him as the fellow Moses, right? He led them out of Egypt, verse 41. That was the time they made an idol in the form of a calf. And the calf was what? It was an Egyptian god. They brought sacrifices to it and held a celebration in honor of what their hands had made. Interesting. But God turned away and gave them over to the worship of the heavenly bodies, right? The moon, the stars. It says, this agrees with what was written in the book of the prophets. Did you bring me sacrifices and offerings 40 years in the desert, O house of Israel? That's what Yahweh asked. You have lifted up the shrine of Moloch, or the Canaanites, and the star of your God, Rephan. Those were the Egyptians. The idols you made that worship. Therefore, I will send you into exile beyond the Babylon, beyond Babylon. Now, remember what it said earlier, right? It said that the Canaanites are being vomited out of the land because of their detestable practices, right? And it says, watch out, Israel, because the same thing's going to happen to you if you don't watch out, if you don't, you know, keep it straight. And what is it saying here? Therefore, I will send you into exile. That's exactly what happened to Israel. Israel went into captivity, got thrown out of the promised land. Actually, that was Judah. Israel was taken captive by the Assyrians. Judah was taken captive by the Babylonians. Gone out of the promised land. And they've been a wandering people ever since. No home, I mean, until Israel was set up. But anyway, you see the point there. It was because of Israel's disobedience and the worship of these gods that Yahweh commanded not to worship, that Israel was taken captive, okay? And that's what happens. Now, we're going to look at two, briefly, two Canaanite cities, and those cities are Sodom and Gomorrah, okay? In case you were wondering, Sodom and Gomorrah are, are in Canaan, okay? Go to Ezekiel chapter 16, and in verse 49, and it says, now this is a sin, the sin of your sister Sodom. She and her daughters are arrogant, overfed, and unconcerned. Well, yeah, but this still is a little light on the condemnation here. But they did not help the poor and needy. They were haughty and did not did detestable things before me. Therefore, I did away with them as you have seen, 
right? There is a better way to translate this. Uh, rather than arrogant, overfed, and unconcerned, right? It is better translated to mean pridefulness, indulgence, and idleness. And that is exactly talking about our culture, right? Remember, I talked about the revisionist Christians who want to get in there and say, well, the sin of, the sin of Sodom wasn't homosexuality. The sin of Sodom was inhospitality. I mean, that's how they want to make, they, they, they try to reduce it to that. And, and that's just not true. So when we talk about these terms, we need to understand that we're dealing with pridefulness, indulgence, and idleness. Those are horrible, horrible. I mean, think about the opposite of that. Humbleness, moderation, and hard, thrifty work. Those are what we're supposed to be doing as Christians, right? That, that sounds like any good Christian disciple. So it's far more serious than inhospitality. I mean, if somebody ever says that the sin of Sodom is inhospitality, it's laughable. That is not what it is. And and for us who understand a little bit of, you know, the spiritual life, we recognize that, you know, in an, in an atmosphere where there is, you know, the this uh, pridefulness and indulgence and idleness, it's an environment that is conducive for homosexuality. Very selfish, very selfish. I wrote down here, in fact, godless, selfish, and indulgent. And that is our culture. And you see it in every culture, by the way, when it becomes advanced. You could see it with the Assyrian culture. You could see it with the Egyptian culture. You could see it with the Canaanites. You could see it with the Greeks. You could see it with the Romans. You can see it in any culture that, you know, no longer is scrapping out a living by, you know, hard work and thriftiness, you know, that that all of a sudden I got so much money, I don't know what to do with it. You know, I, I live in an indulgent culture. Well, gee, what am I going to do next? Do you understand that? That that is where this homosexual lifestyle proliferates. It proliferates in that environment. You look at our own culture and that's exactly what you see. So when we talk about the sin of Sin of Sodom and Gomorrah, I think it, it might be correct to say, okay, the sin of Sodom and Gomorrah wasn't homosexuality. Homosexuality was a barometer of the idolatry that was happening in those two cities. Does that make sense to everybody? And I think that's an important distinction, that whenever you have that kind of large-scale idolatry, you are going to have homosexuality as an indicator of it, okay? So if you were sitting here looking at the, on a scale, the life of the United States, our country, you could see that, okay, this is where, you know, the, you know, idolatry became overwhelming, I guess. I don't know. But that's where you had this proliferation of homosexuality. I mean, it's everywhere now. It's everywhere. Uh, you don't have to turn there. But in Genesis 13, 13, it says the men of Sodom are wicked and sinning greatly against the Lord. So, again, this isn't inhospitality. OK, in uh, you don't have to turn there. Second Peter chapter two, it, it talks about and turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah into ashes, condemn them with an overthrow, making them an example, an example unto those who should live ungodly and deliver just lot vexed with the filthy conversation of the wicked. Okay, so this scripture calls them ungodly, and God reduced these two cities to ashes, burned them up, right? And with all their inhabitants, because they were useless. God didn't do that because people were, you know, oh, gee, I forgot to, you know, invite that man over for supper, you know? <laughs> it's so ludicrous. There was something far deeper, 
Remember, this gets right back to what I was saying earlier, saying earlier that they worshiped and served the creation and not the creator. What makes the practice of homosexuality onerous to God? It's the, the pagans, the, the uh, Canaanite pagans, was it just because they were of the wrong denomination? No, of course not. It's not something that's silly. They were violating God's order, his natural order. The Canaanites' practices from the viewpoint of the creator God were unnatural, forbidden, okay? Unnatural and forbidden. Two words we ought to ingrain in our thinking. We have become far too tolerant of the sin of homosexuality. As far as God is concerned, the God of the Bible, it's unnatural and forbidden or prohibited, okay? It's off limits. You are out of your swim lane. It's another way to think of it. You are outside your swim lane. Uh, go to Jude chapter 1, Jude 1. And it says, and the angels who did not keep their positions of authority, you can translate that properly, domain, but abandon their own home or habitation, right? These he kept in darkness, bound with everlasting chains for judgment on the great day. What are we talking about here? Well, we're talking about the angels that came down in Genesis and cohabitated with human women and had offspring, right? These were the, the loathsome offspring called the Nephilim. Did Jake know about that, right? Okay, so, so what it's saying here is that these angels left their swim lane and went to another swim lane. They did something that, according to God's created order, was a violation. They violated this. All right. Does that make sense, everybody? All right. In verse seven, in similar way, Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding towns gave themselves up to sexual immorality and perversion. They serve as an example to those who suffer the punishment of eternal fire. So are we dealing with inhospitality? Not quite. Not quite. So what happened in both cases was the angels did what was unnatural and forbidden, and the those of Sodom and Gomorrah did what was unnatural and forbidden. Is that clear? And that's according to the creative God, or the creator God, and his creative intent. All right? It's a big deal. It is a big deal. You know, you think about it, it, it has gotten so far now that a country is not deemed advanced and uh, sophisticated if they refuse to uh, accept this, the new LGBTQ plus doctrine, right? Accept homosexuality. You are not considered advanced or sophisticated. And the Bible couldn't be more clear. And within the churches, you have churches, entire churches, denominations who are in the name of love. Uh, perverting their denominations with this stuff. You know, I'll tell you something, you know, like I said, we have nothing but love and compassion. But if I had a person who, who was homosexual coming to my fellowship, there's the expectation of change there, okay? And, you know, of course, people who sometimes they don't get it the first time or even the second time, but they're trying, okay? But if I had a person who was homosexual come to my fellowship and there was no effort to change, no repentance, it's pervasive. That person doesn't last very long. We we uh, will have the parting of the ways, okay? And the reason that a lot of these denominations happen is in the name of love, we allow the person to continue in their sin. That's not love. That is not love, okay? Just so that we're clear on that, that is not love. To allow 
a situation where a person can continue in their sin and put them in the flock. You talk about, and this is really important here, Jesus talked about, I am the good shepherd, right? And he goes on to talk about, my sheep know my voice because I care for them. You think about the shepherd. What does the shepherd do? He's got a staff. Why does he have a staff? To protect the sheep from the wolf and the lion and the bear, okay? But these hirelings called Christian ministers are allowing the wolf to come into the very congregation and devour the flock. That is happening all over Christianity. So just so that we understand each other, those are the stakes. That's what's happening in Christianity. And it's pretty horrible. And in fact, you'll find that a lot of Christians would turn on you and browbeat you because you take a stand on this. You're not being loving. Oh, no, I am being very loving. I am protecting the flock. We cannot allow this stuff to proliferate in our in our churches. It's just not right. So go to Romans chapter one. Now, many of us have had bad teaching on this chapter. Um, we were taught that this is the the homosexual chapter. It's not the homosexual chapter. Homosexuality comes up in this chapter, but it is not the homosexual chapter. It is a chapter on idolatry. Okay, so we just need to be clear on that. This is talking, dealing with mankind as a whole, as a whole. Okay, Romans chapter one, look in verse 18. For the anger, the wrath, the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the ungodliness or godlessness and wickedness of men who suppress the truth by their wickedness. Since what may be known of God was plain to them because God has made it plain to them. Okay, so God's anger is against the godlessness and righteousness of men. What men? All men. Okay. Now, why do I say that? Because those revisionist Christians who want to come in there and, you know, they want to have their cake and eat it too. They want to be able to call themselves Christians and continue in their homosexual lifestyle would say that Romans 1 is a provincial uh, chapter written to a certain time dealing with a certain group. Well, that's not true. How do I know that's not true? Romans 1.18, right? For the anger of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godliness and all the wickedness of mankind. And why is this? Because they suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Interesting point here. The word for truth here simply means reality. You know, when we talk about truth, a lot of times it takes kind of a ecumenical, you know, notion to it. You know, truth, right? This is just saying reality. It's saying, so you have reality and then people who are denying reality. They're denying it. They're changing it. They're altering it. They're saying, you know, they'll look at a Christian who says, well, homosexuality is, is not right. No, no, no. You have, a, you have a twisted sense of reality. Homosexuality is just as natural as heterosexuality. You will hear that in, in our culture. It's just as natural. That is a lie from the pit of hell. That is a lie. So God's anger is revealed from heaven against this suppression of the truth. And he says, since that which may be known of God was plain to them, these people who were suppressing the truth. So they were knowingly suppressing the truth. And, and, it, and it says God made it plain. So remember what I, I read earlier about, you know, that God wrote his word in his creation and nothing is hid from it. Right. Everybody knows that there is a creator God. He may deny it and say, no, it was a big bang right, or something else, but everybody knows in the heart of their hearts, in their intuitive sense, that there is a creator God 
And not only that, that his creation is ordered. It's an ordered creation, that there's right and wrong, okay? And when a person, even though he's never picked up a Bible in his life, does something that is immoral, he knows it. Why does he know it? Because he's part of that creation. And God's creative intent is written on his soul. He knows what he's doing is wrong. Feels good, but it's wrong. Do you understand that? That's vital here, okay? God made it plain to them. Verse 20, for since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and his divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from the things that are made, right? The creation, so that men are without excuse. Think about this. One day there's going to be a judgment, right? If God never laid out the standard, then God would be unjust if you were to just judge mankind, right? Isn't that interesting? So here it says they are without excuse. They've been told, and they will stand before Jesus Christ in the last day, and they are without excuse. That's the truth. You can argue with that all day long. That's the truth, okay? Very important here. Verse 21, for although they knew God, what? They neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him, but their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. Wow. So if I don't hold God in reverence, if I don't revere God, what happens to me? I become dark, right? Now, I want to make a point here. The pronouns. Let's pay attention to the pronouns here. It's talking about they, them. Who are the they, them? Are we talking homosexuals? No, we're talking about nations. We're talking about nations. We're talking about people. We're talking about cultures. We're talking really about those who suppress the truth and unrighteousness that the wrath of God is revealed against. Okay, so this is important for us, because like I said, some of us have some bad teaching from the past. And we want to call this the homosexual chapter. It is not. So this is talking about all humanity, okay? All humankind. And this is important. They knew God. They they neither glorified him nor they gave thanks. But their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened, right? When a culture turns its back on God and refuses to give God his proper worship, that culture becomes dark and irrelevant, all right? Important for us to keep in mind. I wrote this section here I'm going to read for you. I wrote this a number of years ago about this verse, but I want to read this to you again. It says, as the heavens are higher than the earth, so God's thoughts are higher than our thoughts and his ways our ways. Our God sits on his throne, quote, high and lifted up. When mankind reveres him and gives God his rightful place of honor in his heart, that man is also lifted up. But the opposite is also true. When man denies God his proper place in his heart, he descends spiritually and morally, even as his heart grows darker and darker each day. Jeremiah uh, 2.5 says, They are gone far from me and have walked after vanity and become vain. This pervasive darkness infects his reasoning, and in the blindness of his soul, he imagines himself to be wise, even as God calls him a fool. Rather than worshiping the glorious creator who made all things, man debases himself by worshiping images of created things, images that are of his own making. This story of idolatry is the story of humanity. Jeremiah proclaims, It is God who made the earth by his power, who established the world by wisdom, by the heavens. By contrast, however, Jeremiah describes man as, quote, stupid and without knowledge, unquote, that he is, quote, put to shame by his idols, for his images are false, 
and there is no breath in them. They are worthless, a work of delusion. At the time of his punishment, he will perish. Isn't that something? So that was Jeremiah, okay? So the point here is this. If you keep God high and lifted up in your heart, right, you will be lifted up. You will be you will walk un, uh, as worthy of God. You will be a person of spiritual stature, right? The Bible talks about virtue, that we will walk in virtue, that spiritual excellence because of where God is enthroned in your heart. But if God is dethroned in your heart, what happens? The opposite. You go down. It's a downward trend, okay? God has been dethroned from the heart, okay? In Romans 1, that God has been dethroned from the heart, okay? Look in verse 22, Romans 1, 22. It says, although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like mortal man and birds and animals and reptiles. Have we read that before? Yes. It's a deliberate exchange of one thing for another, okay? Like I said earlier, every human being has an intuitive knowledge of God and of his expectations. The worshiping of image of an image made to look like a mortal man or bird or animals or reptiles is the relig- was the religion of that day. For us, it's the worship of mankind, right? Science! The worship of science. I love science, but I don't worship it. The worship of feelings, the worship of sexual desires, the worship of everything mankind, right? That's the day we live in. There was a uh, a Greek philosopher named Protagoras, and he said, of all things, the measure is man, of things that are, that they are, and of things that are not, that they are not. In other words, man has become the measure of all things. That is very Greek, Right? Man has become the measure of all things. The same philosopher said that the individual human being, rather than a God or an unchanging moral law, is the ultimate source of value. Now, isn't that something? And mankind sees himself as the ultimate source of value. God doesn't. So God has been dethroned in the contemporary heart. Verse 24, it says, Therefore God gave them over to the sinful desires of their hearts, to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. So that's what happens. When God is dethroned in the heart, it manifests itself in practice. Now, why sex? That's always been my question. Why sex? Why does sex keep coming up here? Because sex is fundamental to the being, right? I mean, think about this. What is the most uh, fundamental things to your life? Well, one is self-preservation, right? I mean, it's instinctive. If somebody's trying to kill me, I'm going to defend myself, right? But what's, what's another thing that is fundamental? Procreation, right? Your sex drive, your sexuality is fundamental to your being. Think about the animal kingdom. Now, this is, this is, this is really important. So I, I hunt deer. Well, I haven't hunted in a while, but uh, I hunt deer. And when do you go hunting? At first rut. Well, what is first rut? Well, that's when the female deer starts, you know, her time of the they have one time a year right and and then what happens to the male well then they go through this whole ritual right so the female's walking around she's ready and the male is either getting on with her or fighting with another male and and it happens every year and different species manifest it in different ways right but it is part of the cycle of life it is ingrained it's triggered by seasons 
which is wild if you think about it, that seasonal changes trigger biological manifestations of this whole thing. Do you think God was involved in that just a little bit? I mean, that's something. So this is how the whole thing works. It's part of our makeup. It's a biological mandate to us, right? This isn't something like, hmm, I think I'm going to be gay or something. You know, this is reality. This is a driving force. And one thing that a point I want to make here is, is that you got these two things that are mandates, right? Self-preservation, procreation, right? We're driven by these things. If we change from those, like if I were to one day want to commit suicide or one minute or one time deviate from my prescribed sexual part in this thing, it is always spirit. That, that is the reason. Isn't that something? That I would never, by my own rational thinking, take my own life. So anybody who commits suicide is doing so by the influence, a spiritual influence. Okay. Does that make sense to everybody? You would never do that on your own. Uh, and I'm not talking about a situation, you know, in battle or whatever. Um, I'm talking about that a person would take their own life. S- same in, in, in sexuality, that you have a mandate and you are violating a mandate that is essential to you. Okay. So this is really important. Um, so in verse 24, therefore God gave them over. God gave them over to the desires of their sinful hearts, to sexual impurity, for degrading their bodies with one another. See, it's spiritual. It's spiritual. This glorious mankind, right, created a little lower than the angels. And what what is God having to do? He's giving them over. And keep in mind, too, that God does not violate our freedom of will. He doesn't freedom uh, violate our freedom of will. If a person wants to do something, God isn't going to stop them. I mean, that's their, they will be judged, but God is not going to stop them from doing this, okay? So God has no choice but to give them over, all right? Verse 25, they exchange the truth of God. There's that word again, exchange, right? The truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served created things rather than the creator who is forever praised. Amen. So again, you have that thing. This is the idolatry. Verse 26, because of this, God gave them over a second time, right? To shameful us. Even their women exchanged natural relations for unnatural. What are we talking about here? Lesbianism. There's the natural. There's the unnatural. Okay. And the Bible uses the word unnatural. Verse 27, in the same way, the men also abandoned natural relations with women and were inflamed with lust for one another. Men committed indecent acts with other men and received in themselves the due penalty for their perversion. Now, that's pretty harsh, isn't it? That's pretty harsh. Um, part of that is a spiritual blindness, right? That, that That's part of this recompense, this penalty. They can't see beyond the end of their nose spiritually, right? And we are now, in our distorted culture, ordaining homosexual ministers. I mean, wow. You see my point? It's something. The perversion of the heart yields a perversion of sexuality, okay? As we saw where? In Canaan, right? When we were reading earlier. Francis Schaeffer, he's, a, he's dead now, but he was a, quite a theologian. I, I've got a book by him. He said uh, in this book called The Finished Work of Christ, he said, while giving satisfaction on some level of relationship, homosexuality is a total denial of the real world. 
It creates no continuity and contradicts the identity of the person as a child of a father and of a mother. Sad lives end with hand with a handful of ashes strewn to the wind. People want to tell you, well, I'm just I'm just being me, right? No, you're not being me. You have been deceived. The Bible talks about the deception of sin. It is deceiving. There's no happiness. There's no fulfillment in it. The Bible in the beginning, right? Remember in the beginning, male and female, the two became what? One flesh. That is the only one flesh relationship that God ordains. Everything else is defiled. Isn't that something? That is important for us to keep in mind, Christians. (laughs) There is no other relationship that God ordains like that. What does it say in, I think it's in Hebrews, where it says the marriage bed is undefiled. The marriage bed is blessed, that a man and a woman can come together and become one flesh. And in Ephesians 5, what do we learn about that one flesh relationship? That it is illustrative of the one body and the church. So that's that's something. Uh, verse 28. Furthermore, since they did not think it was worthwhile to retain God in their knowledge. In other words, they were they were godless. They didn't retain God in their knowledge. And that can happen to us, can it? I mean, just because you're saved and born again doesn't mean that you can, you know, your your mind can go to seed. You, we have got to be purposeful in keeping God in the center of our thinking. It says, furthermore, uh, let me read that over again. Since they did not think it worthwhile to retain God and the knowledge of God, he gave them over to a depraved mind to do what ought not to be done. So in the King James, it calls this a reprobate mind. So what is reprobate? That means that they have no godly standard, that their mind is devoid of godly standard, that they are unable to judge spiritually right and wrong. Okay? That's huge. So when it comes to the things of God, these people cannot make those distinctions. They can't say that's right and that's wrong. That's light and that's darkness. Verse 29, they have become filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, greed, and depravity. Now, let me stop right there. You know, um, you got to watch. This isn't, remember, this isn't talking about specifically the homosexual, right? This is talking about the person who's idolatrous. Remember, homosexuality is an indicator on a scale. I, I've known gay people. They're not that, <laughs> okay? We're not talking about wickedness, evil, greed, and depravity. I mean, and, and when, and I've had people read this and they say, what is that dealing with homosexuals? Not necessarily. That's not what the chapter's about. But the thing is, is that if you do try to attribute to this chapter, it's a homosexual chapter, you are saying that. And that's horrible. That's not right. That's not correct. I've met some very kind hearted homosexual people. Okay. So, so we got to keep that one straight. Um, they, this is talking about cultures that have given themselves over to a godless idolatry, okay? They have become filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, greed, and depravity. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, and malice. They are gossips, <laughs> slanderers, God-haters, insolent, arrogant, and boastful. They invent ways of doing evil. They disobey their parents. I could look at our society and say this. I certainly can. They are, now listen to this, verse 31. They are senseless, faithless, heartless, ruthless. There's, there it is right there, huh? They are senseless, faithless, heartless, ruthless. So all these people running around saying, you know, it's all about the goodness. We just love you. Nope, nope. Although they know God's righteous decree 
Remember, we heard that earlier. They know God's righteous degree that those who do such things deserve death. They not only continue to do the very things, but also approve of those who practice them. So this is really important, really important to keep in mind. I had a couple of quotes here, and then we'll call it a day. This is a quote by a guy named Edward Welch, and he says, The issue of homosexual orientation is where the church must engage the homosexual community in biblical discussion. The problem, however, is that the idea of homosexual orientation does not rest on any foundation that can be discussed. It relies on neither biblical data or medical research. Instead, it is a political premise for gaining homosexual rights and is rooted in personal experience. Therefore, neither biblical data nor refutation of the medical literature will persuade most homosexual advocates. Ultimately, most homosexuals appeal to their own feelings and to the experience of their homosexual brothers and sisters. Homosexuality feels right to us, so it's natural, is what they say. It is part of our created constitution. You see the distortion there? Isn't that interesting? But that should not keep us from examining their arguments biblically and engaging them in as in as much careful discussion as they are willing. Okay? And that's why it's important for us to be informed. I'm like I said earlier, I'm not advocating bashing people, but I'm advocating being informed. We need to go out there and tell people. There are plenty of people who call themselves Christians who are homosexual. Well, okay. Are you a Christian? Yes, I am. Do you believe that this is God's word? Yes, I do. And you call yourself a homosexual? Yes, I do. Let's sit down and read his word together, right? That's important. We got to be willing to do that. Um, and then one more quote, it says, same guy, uh, we will continue to say what the, wor- uh, what the world by, by and large will not believe, namely, that it is possible to describe homosexual behavior as sinful, perverse, abnormal, and destructive to persons and cultures, while at the same time being willing to lay down our lives in love for homosexual persons. Isn't that beautiful? I love that. That we can state the unvarnished truth and still be willing to lay down our life in service for that person. I love that. That's what that's the that's the tone that we have to strike here, right? That's true love. In fact, we say something even more radical and unbelieving to the world, namely that you must believe homosexual behavior is sin and harmful in order to love homosexual persons. You must be willing to say that. We've got to be able to go there. Because God tells us in 1 Corinthians thirteen six, love does not rejoice in wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. If you deny the truth that homosexual behavior is sin, but instead approve of it or rejoice in it, what you bring to the homosexual person will not be love, no matter how affirming, kind, or tolerant. Our aim is the biblical combination of conviction in God's truth and compassion for God's creation. Yeah, beautiful. So, dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for this. We thank you, Father, for the truth of the Scripture. We thank you, Heavenly Father, that we can strike that balance. That, Father, that we can be just completely clear as a bell on the wickedness of homosexuality. And, Father, that we can show great love and compassion towards that man or woman who is caught in that sin and wants to get out. Father, I thank you that you just bless us with the the ability to go forth and bless other people with that understanding. In your son's name, Jesus Christ. Amen.